So Luke goes out of his way in the first few chapters to, to point out how um, Jesus' coming has fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament, and especially the prophecies of Isaiah. Right? And so like in Luke 1, you've got the, the angel says that Mary is, is going to conceive and bear uh, the Son of the Most High. Right? And, and if you've been with us through our study of Isaiah, you may remember back in chapter 7, that was prophesied in Isaiah, that you know, the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and she'd call him Emmanuel, or God with us. Then in Luke 2, uh, we read about angels appearing uh, at the birth of this child and, and singing about glory to God and uh, peace on earth. In Isaiah 9, uh, promised that that, that would happen. Uh, in Luke 3, we see this other character come on the scene. We see John the Baptist. He comes on the scene and he fulfills what Isaiah spoke of in chapter 40, right, that there would be one calling out in the wilderness to prepare a way for the Lord. Uh, that was, uh, you know, John the Baptist was fulfilling all that. So all of that stuff in just the first few chapters of Luke is, is pulled from Isaiah. Uh, and so one of my favorite moments in the New Testament is in Luke, and it's tied really closely to the text we're going to be in tonight in Isaiah 61. All that being said, let's pray and then we'll get into it. Uh, God, we thank you this evening for giving us another opportunity Lord, to just gather together freely that we can fellowship and uh, be warm and safe and, and sing songs of, of praise. And Lord, that uh, we get free and easy access to your word and free access to you. And Lord, we just pray tonight that you would uh, help us to understand your word and through that understand you better. Pray for your blessing. Pray for Jesus. Alright, so back in Isaiah 49, we saw uh, God starts talking about his ideal servant. Uh, we've, we've been talking about that off and on for the last uh, 10, 11 chapters. And in chapter 49, uh, Jesus started speaking through Isaiah. You know, he spoke in the first person as the ideal servant. And so he does it again here in Isaiah 61, verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. There's a lot going on there. Priests were uh, anointed at the, the beginning of their min- ministry. Right? You anointed someone uh, to, to show that they started that uh, the priestly ministry. You anointed a king uh, when he started his reign. Um, and really, that word, you, you, you hear us say Messiah, uh, you know, the prophecies of the Messiah, all that word means literally is anointed. Um, and the Greek version of that word is Christ. Uh, so he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me uh, because the Lord has anointed me. Uh, I'm the anointed one to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bring, bind up the brokenhearted, to claim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners. Now, back in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, we're going to see something. 
this, uh, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And then look at verse 22. Because when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. So, we see uh, the Holy Spirit anointing, right? Uh, uh, coming upon him, like he said in Isaiah 61, because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Get forward into chapter 4, Luke 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And if you know that story, you know, there's, uh, the devil keeps working on Jesus, uh, you know, tempting him in different ways. And each time uh, Jesus answers, well, it is written. Every time he's tempted, he says, well, no, the word says this. And it's this great allegory. Right? We, see, we see this is the, uh, the program that we're supposed to follow. Right? We, we get baptized, and then we learn to be led by the Spirit. We start dealing with the sin uh, by switching from living on bread alone to living by every word that comes uh, out of God's mouth, right? living on the word of God, and which is how Jesus, you know, deals with the devil. And then now it's time to get your ministry going. Right? You, you, so you, you get saved, you get baptized, you spend a little time learning, and then you get working, you get going. And so that's what Jesus does. He goes back to his hometown, uh, to the synagogue that he'd probably been to, who knows how many times, right? Go, for 20 years, he's lived in this area. So who, may, who knows how many times he's gone to uh, that synagogue? And so Luke 4, verse 16, it says, When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and was, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So he's quoting from this passage that we started in. So he's he uses an interesting expression there. He says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Uh, in the Old Testament, we find uh, something called the, the year of Jubilee. It's one of the interesting things in the, in the law. That every 50th year, all the slaves had to be set free. Anybody that had mortgaged their property or, or you know, leased their ground out, it had to be returned to them. You know, your family's inheritance had to be returned to you, basically. And it was a picture of Christ. Almost everything in the Old Testament was just to teach us about Jesus. And the year of Jubilee was one of those things. But uh, when you're saved, you're set free from your sins. You know, uh, 
you know, your sin debt is canceled. Uh, you're no longer a slave like we sing about on Sunday. And if you let him, uh, the Lord will begin to restore the inheritance that you squandered. That he'll, he'll begin to restore things to you. Anyway, so he talks about this favorable year of the Lord. I think that's kind of what he's referring to. Then in verse 20 it says, And he closed the book, and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all the eyes of all the synagogues were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he says, I've, I've come to set the captives free, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. I am the anointed one. Here I am. I'm your king. What say you? Well, verse 28, it says, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. I've always wondered how that worked. Somehow, some way, he just slipped through their fingers. But he says, here I am, I'm your king, here's your chance to recognize me. And instead, they, they try to kill him. So, why are we hanging out in, in Luke right now? Jesus, he chose Isaiah 61 to announce his arrival, to give Israel the chance to recognize their king. There's more going on there than meets the eye. Okay, we'll go back to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus stopped at to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he sat down. He stopped mid-sentence. The day of vengeance is going to be at Jesus' second coming. Uh, John 12, I think, 47 says that Jesus says, I didn't come into the world this time to judge the world, but to save the world. But, you, you know, all through Isaiah, we've been learning about this day of vengeance, this day of judgment that is coming. Right? There is a time coming when Jesus will judge the world, when, when he's going to set some things straight. And I've, all, I've, I've, I've often wondered, would he even have needed to come a second time if they would have recognized him in that moment? Would he have just skipped to the end? What Jesus did is he says, I'm here to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And everyone was like, let's kill him. And he goes, okay. And then also the day of vengeance. Right? So you've rejected your king. I came with the good news and you rejected it. And so I've got some bad news. Basically. Verse 3. He says, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of thinking, 
so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So in Isaiah's day, uh, during funerals uh, or times of mourning, uh, people would wear sackcloth, and, uh, which would just be like coarse material. Yeah, I'm really big about what materials I wear. Um, I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but like, you know, stuff's got to be soft and, you know, I won't wear certain types of shirts because of that. And so I can't imagine, like, wearing, you know, canvas underwear or whatever, you know, like, that cloth. The whole point was it was supposed to be itchy and uncomfortable and, you know, if you saw someone wearing that, you're like, oh, they're going through a rough time. Um, and they'd put ashes on their heads. Again, it was just a cultural thing. During a joyous occasion, like a wedding, people would wear garlands, right? Or a crown of beauty, your Bible makes it. And so there's this play on words he's using here. Uh, it's garland or, or beauty and ashes. This is something that doesn't come across as well in English. But in, he- in Hebrew, that garland and ashes, or beauty and ashes, are almost the same word. They sound really similar. And so he's saying, you know, instead of this, I'm going to give you that. Instead of ashes, I'm going to give you beauty. Does that sound familiar at all? We sing a song here, uh, Graves in the Garden, where it says, uh, you know, you turn mourning to dancing, you give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory, you're the only one who can. That's where that whole I'm gonna, God can take something ugly in your past and with just a little tweak turn it into beauty. He can take pain from your past and turn that into your new passion, your ministry. I often tell people, you know, when, uh, if you look around this church or any church for that matter, but if you look around this church, you'll find lots of things that could use some improvement. And the ones that bother you the most might just be the ones that God called you to help with. Uh, the thing that really gets under your skin very often is the thing that uh, uh, maybe it can be your ministry. You know? uh, and so some of us, we've, we've had some scars or pain in, the, in our past that God has gotten us through and gotten us over. And we could really help someone else with that. You know, maybe you don't want to go back and relive that stuff. But anyway, that's another message for another day. But so he talks about this beauty and ashes, and he talks about a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. Um, you know, as believers, we're supposed to be wrapped in a, a covering of praise by the culture. There's healing that comes when, when we praise the Lord with our lips and with our hearts. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where maybe a particular song or a particular verse all of a sudden just comes alive as you speak it or as you sing it and, and something changes. That's supposed to happen. Uh, our, our relationship, it can't just be one-sided. We're supposed to talk back to God and sing back to God. 
Anyway, he says, there, you know, there's healing that comes when we're when we're wrapped in this mantle of praise. When you're struggling, praise him. When things seem out of control, you praise him because he's in control. And so those who this, this anointed one set free, who have joy instead of mourning, who praise when others faint, because they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he makes the sea glorified. I'm reminded of uh, the, the first psalm, Psalm 1, verse 1. says this, says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. Right? There's a big contrast. Just like Isaiah said a few chapters ago, that there's no rest or peace for the wicked. And so that's what we hope to accomplish with this, this type of study, right? Is that by looking at uh, the roots, that we would sink our roots even deeper into Jesus, right? That we would be like a tree planted uh, by streams of water, you know, that we'd be healthy and able to stand strong because we've sunk our roots deep into healthy soil. So, while all that's true for us, remember the context. Jesus says here that uh, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. From that point on, in Isaiah here, he's speaking. He's going to be speaking mostly about the second coming, right? the, the day of vengeance, that tribulation period that we've spent some time studying uh, over the last year and a half or so, is primarily about restoring Israel, um, and that would that would have been the main concern on the mind of Isaiah's audience when he wrote this. The, the restoration of Israel. Our country is falling apart. Uh, what does the future hold? That's what his audience is wondering, and that's what God is speaking to them about. So verse 4, Isaiah 61, verse 4, says, Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins, they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So as much as Israel has been rebuilt today, um, most of that is still going to be destroyed um, in these last days. Basically, what we can tell from the Bible is there's, there's still two major wars on the uh, prophetic calendar, on the agenda. Uh, there's going to be an invasion uh, from the north, from Russia. Uh, you can read about that in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, and that's either going to be right before the tribulation or right at the beginning of it. And then there's another big battle uh, in the valley of Megiddo. Um, we call that Armageddon. Um, when, where, where the Lord pours out all of his wrath. So, some people when they read this stuff, they're like, oh wow, this has been fulfilled. Because look how Israel has been rebuilt. It used to be ruins and now it's 
you know, this thriving place and if you ask, most of that's going to be destroyed again. So he's talking about something else. He's talking about what happens after Armageddon. Right? When Jesus sets up his throne, he's going to rebuild Israel. Uh, verse 5, the strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. And foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. You know, we take that um, that expression there, you know, says, you will be called priests of the Lord. This is a promise to Israel. That's who he's speaking to. But we take that kind of stuff for granted. You know, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, Peter tells us that if you're a Christian, we are, you are a royal priesthood. That you are a priest. You're the new Levite. Okay? And that's something to pay attention to when you read in the Old Testament. Especially pay attention to what goes on with the tribe of Levi, because they're the priests. Right? And in the New Testament, they tell us, well, now you're the priests. Right? You're the people that are supposed to bring people to God. But he says, you know, in that day, in the in the kingdom, when I come back, um, things are going to be different. Because for the Israelites, only the Levites could be priests. Right? If you wanted to be a priest, you had to be born into the right family uh, to even have a chance. You had, had to have the right bloodline. And he says, in that day, all of you are going to be my priests. You know, you, there's not going to be anything hindering you from being to me. Verse 7, he says, Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. The double portion is, um, that's the share of the inheritance of the firstborn. Right? You have three kids, and in the Old Testament anyway, under the law. They didn't get three equal shares. The first kid got a double portion. He got, or he or she got more than the other two. Um, and Israel is God's firstborn among the nations. That's what in Exodus four. That's how he refers. So he says basically, Israel, you won't be ashamed. But weirdly, nobody's jealous, even though you get a double portion. It's not like we, the Christians, you know, who are not Jewish, are going to be like, oh, man, you know. Nobody's, nobody's jealous because uh, we, somehow, we somehow get a double portion, too. It doesn't make sense, but that's how it's going to work. Basically, you know, uh, nobody's going to be jealous of what anybody else has. And that'll be a whole new experience. Right? That's contrary to how the world works. It's a good test for a real friend. I was talking with one of my kids about this uh, the other day. A real friend um, will actually celebrate with you when you're, when you're blessed, right? They, uh, they're not jealous that you got blessed. They're happy for you. Uh, very often, people will uh, not react that way. When, when something goes right for you. But when, when someone gets more, uh, it doesn't always mean that you get less. It's an important thing to, to keep in mind. Anyway, 
Verse 8, he says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. Or corruption. He says, I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of all of the people. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. Basically, you know, we'll, we'll all look and say, look how the Lord kept His promise. Look how God came through. He, he made a promise to Abraham, and He made promises to David, and look, He has kept His word. He kept those promises. Now Isaiah uh, and God's people, they, you know, the, the, the speaker changes. Uh, Isaiah speaks here, verse 10. He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So he, Isaiah, he hears this message of how God's going to uh, one day restore things. He's going to change it to where everyone can, can come into his presence. And he's just blown away that, that God loves him so much. Ernest Hemingway uh, wrote this short story called uh, The Capital of the World. And in this story, he writes about a, a father and son uh, who their relationship is strange. Uh, they, they're not getting along great. And the son, he runs away, but he's kind of driven away. You know, dad kind of makes him run away. Anyway. And over time, his dad, you know, he looks everywhere for his son. He wants to restore their relationship. And his search eventually leads him to um, Madrid. And so he knows that he's in this city, but he can't, that's as close as he can get. Finally, he's desperate, and he takes out an ad in the newspaper. The ad says this. It says, uh, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the, off, uh, the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And so the next day, 800 Pacos show up. Because they're all seeking uh, forgiveness and the love of their father. There's been a theme for the last few chapters. Uh, there's, there's no rest or peace uh, for the wicked. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Isaiah 59. And then last week, you know, your iniquities have separated you from your God, but arise 
shines, the light has come. He's here to set you free, to turn your past into your future. And then He's calling us to, to sink our roots deep into Him. And when things are going good and when they're not, to still give Him to Because He's going to keep His promises. He's always done it and He always did. Next week, we're going to get into uh, a little bit more of that. Uh, but for this week, in the church. But we thank you so much that you, you do keep your promise. That, uh, that you're offering forgiveness. That you want us back in your uh, embrace. You, you want that for us if you don't force it. Lord, we just pray that that we would be ever mindful of the things that you were worthy of praise. Especially tomorrow we're going to eat and celebrate. uh, uh, We call it Thanksgiving, but uh, tonight we just want to give you thanks. Because you're so good. Because you're so merciful that you made it possible, Lord, that uh, we could be priests, that we could come into your presence and, and be close to you and bring others uh, into that same relationship. And we're thankful that uh, we're thankful that we live in a time where your grace is still saving people. We're thankful that. Two thousand years ago in that synagogue when they when they rejected you. Or that you put off that day of vengeance. Because of that we can we can come into a relationship with you today. Well, we're thankful for that, but we also look forward to the day when you return. You said all things. So you come and come quickly. So you come and Happy Thanksgiving, y'all. Ready? Great.